We began our Advent series with waiting. One of the hardest things we ever do as humans is, is waiting. And Pastor Kent reminded us that while God's timing isn't always our timing, his timing is perfect. And then the, the week after that, we talked about lament, that our times are dark and at times we suffer greatly. And so lament is the Christian's way of grieving while holding on to faith and not giving in to despair. Last week, we talked about then faith, that faith is, is one of the most important things in our life. And frankly, the object of our faith is the most important thing in any man, woman, or child's life. And that object, I hope today for each and every one of us is Jesus. And so faith then leads today to our topic, hope. And we're going to focus today, uh, at least in part, on the last book of the Old Testament, the Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Would you join me in standing? I, again, forgot to write down the Pew Bible page number, but we're going to read from Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you've got the, the Bible there, you're not sure where to find it. If you find Matthew's gospel, just go one book back, and then you've got, you've got Malachi. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. O Lord, you know how much I've wrestled with this passage. There's so much to say. <clears throat> and I, you know my gift of gab. Lord, give me clarity and brevity. Lord, and most of all, may your word speak into our hearts, doing the work that only it can do to convict, to rebuke, to encourage, and to ignite hope. May we walk out of here changed people. For your glory, in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> The title for today's sermon is simply Our Unchanging Hope. Our Unchanging Hope. And a quick look in my Apple dictionary, because I've got an Apple laptop. Uh, hope is defined as follows. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. A, a person or thing that may help or save someone. Grounds for believing that something good may happen. That's the Dictionary definition, if you will, of hope. A feeling of expectation, a desire for something to happen, a person or thing that may help, grounds for believing that something good may happen. So notice that qualifying word that comes over and over again in, in the at least the 
common dictionary's definition of hope, and that is the word may. In, in other words, it, it's probable, but it's not guaranteed. It's what every sports fan loves in the preseason is the, the hope that you might win something this year. And then the reality sets in. This is what the world believes to be the definition of hope. Now, a quick search on hope in my theological dictionaries uh, tells a different story. Let me read this to you. I won't read all of them, but this comes from the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms and then the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms. Uh, the Christian anticipation of the future, uh, hope is defined as the Christian anticipation of the future as the fulfillment of God's purposes based on God's covenant faithfulness and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hope refers to the, quote, expectation of the believer that God will fulfill promises made in the past. Biblical hope is more than a simple wish. It entails certainty based on God's demonstration of faithfulness. So hope without Christ is a percentage game. Hope without Jesus is a percentage game. It may be high in our minds that whatever we think will save us, but it's not guaranteed by any means. But according to the Bible, according to the large narrative of the scriptures, hope, at least as it regards to salvation, is absolutely certain. But it's not based on our feelings. It's not based on our circumstances around us, but it's based on Jesus. So the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, where is your hope? Christian, is your hope misaligned right now? Visitor, do you have a hope that is Christian? Is it centered on Jesus or something else? We'll explore that topic through the prophet Malachi. Now, Malachi is probably new to many of us. We don't hear sermons from this book very often. Malachi is considered one of the minor prophets. And all that means is, as you go through your Bible and you, you, you notice that the, the prophets start large as far as chapters go and then get smaller. So you've got Isaiah and you've got Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then Daniel's kind of the last of the great prophets just by length of his book. And then we have the 12 minor prophets. And Malachi is the last of the 12 minor prophets. Not because he's the shortest, but because he is chronologically the last man of God to speak God's word to his people. So again, Malachi is not 12th because his chapters are the shortest, but because he falls last. And after Malachi, there are over 400 years of silence, sometimes called the intertestamental period. So between your Old Testament and your New Testament, there's over 400 years of complete and utter silence. Utter silence from God. A people that God regularly spoke to through his prophets no longer hear his voice. Now, Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. What does that mean? It means that Israel had been deported to Babylon as a punishment and they're now back, or at least some of them are back in the area. And they came back to a destroyed city and a devastated temple and the absence of the presence of God with them. The Ark, we have no idea where the Ark of the Covenant is. And the list goes on. <clears throat> and Malachi, therefore, is that last beacon of hope, that last ray of light in 400 years of 
silence. Now, there's a great historical collection of books called the Maccabees, and they describe the Maccabean revolt. And that's good history, but it's not divine revelation. 400 years of silence. I was looking at, at, you know, Wikipedia, which I know we shouldn't use for papers, and uh, I'm admitting my my source here, but I did a quick little search back to to 400 years prior from from today, from this year. In Jamestown, the very first English settlement was just getting going. So now imagine with me, all this fancy computer stuff's gone, all, all... so much of how we exist is gone, and we're, we're back to the first settlement here in the States, what well, wasn't even called the States back then, and the famine and the plague and the fear of, of war with, with various Indian tribes. 400 years of silence. We can't even imagine the, 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 the differences technologically, even in our language, let alone 400 years of silence. Now, If we were to fast forward to Luke 1, like we did last year, we see that there are God's people who are still believing. They still are holding on to to hope. We we see it in in Zechariah and Elizabeth, who become the parents of John the Baptist. We see it in in Joseph, we talked about last week, and Mary. We, We see it later when Jesus is brought to the temple and dedicated with Anna and Simeon. So God's people haven't given up. At least some of them haven't. That ray of hope in Malachi is still shining but it's gotta be weak. At least it seems to be weak as we watch Jesus minister and call people to repentance. Now, let's, let's just real quick introduce the book of Malachi and then we'll, we'll dig into our text from chapter three today. Malachi, uh, we have it in four chapters, but really it's, it's six disputations, six back and forths between God and his prophet and the people. Okay, and ours is gonna be the fourth of six, chapter three that we read just a few minutes ago. And there's a pattern. Either God or the prophet says, you say God's people about me, and then he responds to what they're saying. And so the opening uh, verses of Malachi, if you have that opening in your Bible, you'll notice, I have loved you, says the Lord, verse two, but you say, how have you loved us? And we notice a pattern here where God's people are not happy with God and they continue to accuse him of things, one of not loving them because their circumstances Show them a devastated city, a devastated temple. Very few of the Jews came back. So many of them are dispersed. I mean, with their their eyes, not of faith, it seems like God is not loving them. You ever felt that way? Yeah, me too. And this back and forth becomes, frankly, convicting as Malachi as the Lord leads him and speaks through him, reminds God's people that part of why they don't, quote, feel God's presence with them is because their sin is great. And Malachi exposes several of these things in chapter one and chapter two. In fact, I should have probably started our passage this morning in chapter two, verse 17. So um, this won't be on your screen, but our passage will come up next. So uh, chapter two, verse 17 reads, You have wearied the Lord with your words. This is Malachi speaking. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So our passage begins with this question. How can God be just? when we're experiencing all of this suffering and all this evil, 
It seems like the good guys, quote unquote, are suffering and the bad guys are flourishing. That's a question relevant to our day and age today, isn't it? That question never gets old. It's not the first time it's addressed in the scriptures. The Proverbs are full of this and wisdom literature talk often about how, how we perceive things aren't reality because our view of time is so limited, isn't it? This is part of what Kent unpacked that first week. We are even more so now an instant culture, an impatient people and our timing, we want it yesterday and God is often far more patient. And frankly, that's a good thing. But at times experientially, it's a very difficult thing. Well, our passage then, chapter three, verse one, which should show up on your screen now. So knowing that context, God's people are asking him, where is justice? Malachi says this, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now you recognize this, don't you? Jesus quotes this in Matthew chapter 11 in reference to John the Baptist. So that's what we have here. Behold, I will send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. Notice God's speaking about himself. And in other words, even Malachi points to whoever John the Baptist is going before is God himself, hinting at the incarnation, fully God, fully man. Behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way, verse two. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. See chapter one and chapter two of Malachi, God is convicting his people that they have been bringing him their leftovers, their their tithes and offerings aren't godly. They're they're imperfect. They're the second hand, not the first fruits, not the tithes that God has commanded, that God deserves because he is God. But notice the servant will come and he will be a refiner. And and notice the the language here, refining, whether it's that harsh soap or the the refining of, of precious metals, it is harsh, it is painful. We could unpack that for a while, but, but it, it, that's clearly the idea here, that God's refining is not gentle at times. It is extremely painful. And if you're a Christian for any time, length of time, you, you know that conviction can be also painful. That when our sin is exposed, it is not easy. But verse five, then I will draw near to you for judgment. So this is an answer to that question. God, are you, are you really just? Are you going to bring justice? This is the, the cry of the person who has suffered abuse, neglect, has had a loved one killed or murdered or abused. And yet the perpetrator seemingly gets away with it scot-free. This is the issue that maybe sours some of our police enforcement. We, we, our men and women in arms try so hard to enforce the law, and yet it seems at times like 
the bad guys just get away far too often. So verse five, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against, and then there's a list. This is not an exhaustive list. This is the list of the present day sins in Malachi's time among God's people. So this is not exhaustive. God will judge all sin. That is clear from other passages of scripture. But here he's talking about sorcerers, those who, who look to someone else for their answers to prayer instead of God. <clears throat> against adulterers, that is husbands or wives who are cheating on their spouses, having sex with other men and women who are not their spouses. Against those who swear falsely, those who, who lie. In so many ways that can be unpacked even today, right? Those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless. It, it turns out that, that those in power uh, haven't just recently abused it. This has been since the time immemorial. In, in other words, those that are in power are often tempted to abuse those who do not have it. The problem with the, the woke uh, generation, quote unquote, is that they just don't actually have a full enough definition of sin. They think it's just tied up in, in power struggles. It's far deeper than that, but I digress. Uh, those God will draw ju to judgment against those who thrust aside the sojourner, that is the foreigner, the alien in their land. Apparently that's not new either. And last but not least, they do not fear me. Says the Lord of hosts, by the way, the Lord who marshals the armies of angels and could wipe us all out in the blink of an eye. <clears throat> so the context here is justice. And the answer is no. God is going to punish the unjust. Or the answer is yes, God is just. And what will come about may not be instant, may not be even in 400 years, but it's coming. Now, when we look at prophecy in the Old Testament, I'm often reminded, and I don't remember who mentioned this, it doesn't come from my brain, that's for sure, but it's like looking at a, 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 a mountain range. So let's say we're driving out west to Denver, our daughter lives there, and you, you see the range. What, you, what we have a hard time with is depth perception. We see peaks, unless we really know it, and we, we, we can't really tell the distance visually between that first peak and the, the peaks behind it. There could be an incredible amount of distance, and there are, in fact. So too with prophecy. It seems at times God, through his word, doesn't give us that depth measure, that time between prophecies. In other words, it, it seems instant, but it doesn't, but one part happens here, and then 400 years later, this part happens, and then this part happens, another 10,000, whatever, how many years later? So here we, we have some of that. We, it seems like God's going to bring about this justice and wipe, wipe the slate clean and, and do all these things, but, but there's, there's steps. There's, there's progression to God's <clears throat> uh, revelation and particularly his, what deals with the end times. And, and so I, I, I've said this before, I'll, I'll say it again. Please don't follow those on YouTube or others who, who seem to have the, the, the corner on, on on, on how everything's going to lay out chronologically. History proves they're always wrong. Don't follow them. Not even Jesus knew his time of his return. Again, putting that aside. <clears throat> so we have here uh, a promise that God will indeed be just. But that's not why this passage so captured my mind. As I, I was reading this in my devotionals a, few, a week or two ago. It was verse six that really captured me. So let's focus on verse six. 
For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I want to argue today that our surety, our 100% guarantee of hope is based on God's unchanging character. For I, the Lord, do not change. Theologians call this God's immutability. I'll read the little nerdy definition here. That God is free from all change. And by that, what we mean is that his character is perfect and changeless. And he is divinely constant. So it's hard for us to imagine, but you and I can set out and declare whatever it might be but circumstances can force us to have to change our course. Circumstances can tempt us to to change, to cause flaws in our character, all sorts of things. But our God is never pushed around, bullied by circumstances. His purposes are never thwarted. You've heard me quote this often because I think it's such a good nugget of truth from Scripture. Remember even the testimony of Joseph's life, that what his brothers, this is Joseph of, of the Technicolor Dreamcoat musical fame, remember his brothers sold him into slavery and yet God used their sin for his glory to keep them safe and preserve his people. So God is not even, friends, deterred or changed or thwarted by your sin, by my sin. How does that work? We will ask him when we get there. None of us know. Philosophers who aren't Christian wrestle with this all the time. Okay, we're not alone in wrestling with this issue. But it is a good comfort to us, friends, that our hope is steadfast and sure, not because of our emotions in the moment, not because of our experience and our circumstances around us, but because of God and his unchanging character and his ability to do what he will do when he wants to do it. In short, there's nothing more important for our grasp of hope in God than in his character. It's why we study his word. It's why we we sing songs that summarize great portions of his word so we can learn and then be reminded again and again that God is not like us. He is perfectly loving, perfectly just, all-powerful, all-knowing, and the list goes on and on. And even more specifically, there are incredible promises from Genesis to Revelation that have not changed ever. So God's people hear this word, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Yes, he's exiled them. He's punished them. Many of them have died at the sword because of their sin, but they are not utterly destroyed. God swore that he would never do that again. And every time we see a rainbow, we're reminded of that promise. God would not wipe out the earth again. So one passage that we encounter as we read the Old Testament, and I I love to read through the Old Testament. I typically read two or three passages a day in my devotionals, is a passage from Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Exodus, second book of your Bible, chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. 
God does not change. God's promises do not change. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 9. And this should be up, thank you, above on the screens. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses. So we're back with Moses here. We're, we're, we've just left Egypt. Um, Ten Commandments. Uh, remember, Moses goes up. The Israelites sin uh, because of uh, their own sin and with Aaron's help, they make the, they make the, the evil idol, the, the, the golden calf. And, and Moses speaks out, don't destroy them all, please. And now we have this passage, verse six. <clears throat> the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Exodus chapter 34, verses six through nine. A couple observations. Notice God's character, friends. If you're looking for a passage to study this week, a passage to memorize, this is a wonderful passage. Merciful, verse six. Gracious. What is grace? It's giving what we don't deserve. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Slow to anger. God is careful with his anger. None of us are as careful as God is with his anger. It is there, but he's careful. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The idea is there is no end. It is a line in both directions. There is no limit. <clears throat> abounding in steadfast love. Notice the character, the quality of God's love. It is steadfast, consistent, always present, steadfast love. And that steadfast love is also faithful. Even when we are not faithful, God cannot violate his own character. He is faithful. And that's why we love to sing, great is thy faithfulness. Notice that now some of, some of the gerunds, some of the verbs with the INGs here, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Here the idea is generations. For thousands of generations, God <coughs> keeps his steadfast love. For generations innumerable, un uncountable, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, God is still a just judge. There are no get out of jail free cards. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, notice the contrast. That seems dark at the end there. God is <clears throat> abounding in steadfast love for thousands of generations. You can't count how many generations have experienced God's faithfulness, his love, his mercy. But he will punish to the third or fourth generation, the wicked. 
Boy, that's not even a fair scale, is it? When you think about it. We, we often wrongly caricature the God of the Old Testament as a God of wrath, but that does not equate with that at all. You put the weight, thousands of generations receiving God's steadfast love and three or four punished for sin, and there's just there's no contest. And this promise undergirds so much of the Old Testament, doesn't it? Think about it. And look at your Bibles. If you have a reference Bible, you'll see Psalm after Psalm and, and prophet <clears throat> mentioning this passage over and over again. Why? Because we so easily forget, don't we? It's certainly one of the things we learn about the, the Israelites. We're just like them. We too so easily forget God's promises and therefore we lose hope. We look at our circumstances. I'm so guilty of this myself and I, I can't see God's faithfulness, God's love beyond my pain, beyond my suffering, beyond my sin even. And yet he is <clears throat> unbelievably loving and gracious to thousands of generations and hundreds of us here in this room. Amen? I didn't hear that. Amen. Yeah, amen. So when we think of hope, which is a common theme in Advent, and Advent, remember, is a season of waiting. It's a season, as Kent reminded us, of preparing our hearts to again receive the good news of a baby born in a manger who's just not cute and cuddly, but the Savior, very God, very man, fully God, fully man, the greatest showing of God's love to us outside of, of course, that pretty cross and the empty tomb. <clears throat> Malachi reminds us <clears throat> that at the core of our hope is an unchanging God. Is an unchanging, immutable God who does not let circumstances guide his temperament, his love, or his justice. Now, <clears throat> I said earlier, he, he doesn't give a get-out-of-jail-free card, and I, I meant that in the sense that God always punishes sin. And we know from Genesis that blood is the punishment, <clears throat> of course, for sin. But there is a, a get-out-of-jail-free card in that monopoly sense that Jesus took, of course, our punishment. So, <clears throat> we've talked about this, and it's worth repeating. There is no good news, friends, if there wasn't an escape from the bad news, right? Salvation is not glorious if we don't fully comprehend the weight of our sin and the worthiness of our damnation. If we take sin lightly, then we will take <clears throat> a savior even more lightly. Notice <clears throat> back into Malachi chapter, towards the end of chapter three, Malachi has had these strong words. The Lord has had his strong words through <clears throat> his servant Malachi and the people respond. Then those among the group of, of, of Jews who heard this message, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Hear these words, Christian. And Hear these words if you're not a Christian. They could be your promise, your sure and steadfast hope. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. They shall be mine. 
in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Friends, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we turn from our sin and say, I need you as my savior, we move into that special treasured possession category. Because Jesus paid for our sin. His sacrifice paid for all of our punishment that we most definitely deserved. And God now sees him. And we get adopted through Jesus into the family of God. But lest we forget, verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So not everybody, in other words, is God's treasured possession. And this is the the message I often share at funerals because we're so busy, usually we're distracted. We don't think about eternal things, but when death comes calling on someone we love and there's a casket here or an urn, well, we start thinking about those things. So today, as I said earlier, I want you and I beg you, please, to think about your hope. It's ultimately not about you. It's about Jesus. Is your hope there? But, but pastor, I've sinned too much. No, Jesus pays for sin. But pastor, science. No, I think, I think the Bible has some good answers regarding, quote, the religion of science that says you can't have God and science. That's not true. But, <clears throat> but pastor, If I'm honest, I like my sin more than I want a savior. Yeah, me too. That's always our danger, isn't it? But again, the hope here through the good news of Jesus Christ is what I want you to focus on this morning. So if you're you're struggling this morning with your faith, or if you're not sure if you have uh, saving faith that is rooted in the object of Jesus, the, the historical man who was fully God and fully man, who died on a Roman cross, who was buried in a tomb, who rose from the dead and thousands witnessed. And millions and millions of people have read this word and heard it preached and been saved. Friend, please consider, no greater hope can you have this season than the hope of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, I will pray this this prayer from Moses in in Exodus 34. And I'm going to change the words, Lord, not because I want to change your scripture, but because I want to pray (coughs) in such a fashion that we understand your word. Lord, if we found favor in your sight, please reveal yourself to us. Through your word, and through the testimony of the Spirit that you're doing a work in our hearts. We are a stiff-necked people. We are so quick to sin. We are impatient. We are unkind. We're ungracious. We are unjust. We lie. We steal. We cheat. We look at those whom we should not be looking at. We look down at those whom we should love. And the list, the list is so long we could be here for an hour. 
We bring our sin. We don't hide it. We bring it before you, God. And we say, Jesus, pardon our sin. Let your blood pay for the hell that we deserve. And we ask that you would take us as your inheritance, that you would look on each of us <coughs> through your son and see us as your beloved people. And last but not least, may today be a day where we grow in that hope, that steadfast hope that doesn't change because you don't change, that those whom you have saved, you will keep until the day of your return. And we now lastly ask that Jesus, that you would come quickly. In your name we pray, amen.